We're back, continuing our talk with Dr. James Fallon about his book, The Psychopath Inside, A Neuroscientist's Personal Journey into the Dark Side of the Brain. Let's talk about, about, about how this all comes together. You, you found some abnormalities in the anatomy, which is starting to make a great deal of sense. You've been doing research into genetics to try and put this together. And uh, a very amusing part of your book is a chapter where you describe how your mother took you aside in the genetics department, I guess you might say, to kind of explain some things about your family tree. Can you talk a little bit about some of the uh, lurid examples that, that turned up? Well, yes, my mother's family, they're all from Sicily, and they uh, they arrived in the U.S. It was just like watching The Godfather, you know, in the turn of the century when he's sitting there at Ellis Island. That's what my grandfather was, a, little, a, a 12-year-old alone and just living on the street, you know, this little Sicilian kid who had a lot of, was able to use bias against him uh, to, you know, collect coal and to collect food. And then he's, you know, he was a self-taught guy. But as part of this, being self-taught and, and doing anything to take care of your family, he had a thriving uh, a bootlegging business. So my mother and my aunts were all bootleggers. And, and he probably ran some numbers too. And, and all of this stuff got a low-grade stuff during the Depression. Now, they don't remember ever being poor. But, you know, they were objectively very poor. But then, you know, the... You know, since they were making their own clothes and everything, they never remember being unhappy. But part of this, you know, when she was a teenager, she'd take a ride up on a dynamite truck to Lucky Luciano's place. They lived in New York, and she would do that stuff. So growing up and then afterwards, she and her sisters, all the Sicilians, uh, were always teased by the civilians, the civilians being their husbands who were not Italian or Sicilian, uh, for being like mafiosa, being low-grade mafiosa. Well, she found something several years ago. At the same time, when we had the scans, it all came together at the same time, mm -hmm. the same couple of months. It was very bizarre timing. And and she, uh, we had a barbecue here. We always you know, party together and cook. We all like to cook. And she says, you got to see this. Your cousin from New York, who's a newspaper editor, uh, on your father's side, found this book. It's a historical book called Killed Strangely. And it's a, she said, this is a book about your family. And she was trying to twinkle in her eye because she goes, it's not my part of the family, it's your father's. This was her chance to eat even, I think. She said, look at the rats in this. And so I'm, we're sitting there at the party. I said, Ma, I can't read this. She said, well, just quickly go look at page 42, 85. Well, in there, it's about the first case of a son killing a mother in the colonies. 1667. So my direct great 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 grandfather was the first guy to kill his mother in the colonies. And that was kind of, that's like a part, you know, that's like an interesting story of, you know, ancestry. And I said, you know, I said, ancestry is not genetics. That's, that's, it's just a kind of a fun story of having horse thieves in your family. She goes, no, no, read it, read more. <laughs> and so as we went through toward the end of the book, there's a whole series of these guys directly in a line of grandfathers to me that murders. And that line was the Cornell line. Now, in the end of the book, there was some good news because Ezra Cornell, who founded Cornell University, is my cousin. But another Cornell cousin, Lizzie Borden, not so much so. <laughs> so cousin Lizzie is so famous in the U.S. But, you know, we all have these in our background. The axe murderers. The axe murderers. Allegedly. Allegedly, yeah. But, uh, in our family, she's not. She's been acquitted. <laughs> We've got to leave Lizzie alone. But it doesn't count for all the other uh, Cornells, uh, many of whom were really uh, tough hombres. So uh, bad guys. And it was funny because in that family, in the whole family on my father's side, there were either guys and some women who were very bad, beha poorly behaved, murderers, and they'd leave their families and they're really terrible, uh, or a lot of uh, ministers, 
So people are really good or really bad, as if the whole family had this problem of balance between the devils and angels in our head, if you will. A few years ago, after this thing from 2006, a few years ago, my the same cousin in New York found three other lines on my father's side, and our mutual father's side, because he's a cousin on my father's mm -hmm. side, uncle's side, uh, that had a whole bunch of murders. And it goes wow. back to England, so we're related to all the, kind of the worst of the English kings. And there were some, you know, even if you try to say that you, it was, there was context dependence, they were all bad. Now, these guys were particularly bad, and they brought it with them to the United States. And they came over to Mayflower. We've got three of our ancestors were on the Mayflower. So this is something with deep roots. Still, it's just a parlor game. But if you, you know, after this thing around the turn of the last century, uh, everybody became a sweetheart. We didn't have any murders anymore. In fact, it kind of went the other way. But we know, if looking at the pattern, that we're due. And so my <laughs> grandkids are very interested in this. So being due, we know it's really strongly in our background. So the nice part of our background is the mafia side, as it turns out. You know, I just want to throw in a personal anecdote at this time uh, regarding your family. Um, back in the day when, when I was a medical student here, you, you were hanging out with us which is unusual for most of the faculty, and your brother came along on one of these, one of these events, and we were, you know, I think getting liquored up, <laughs> having a few beers, <laughs> telling, telling quite a few jokes. And I remember at one point, um, your brother was standing there, and it's to emphasize the joke about somebody, uh, something or other, I sort of reached over and like grabbed him in the shirt. And I remember this very well, because there was a split second where he was about to react, and then he just suppressed it completely, and then a second later, it was just kind of like, well, that, that's inappropriate. But I thought, this is a guy, I got a feeling that he's used to like, if you do that normally, he's going to beat the crap out of you. Well, we do have people in our family <laughs> who are impulsive and who like to fight. Uh, and they're not psychopaths, as it turns out, but so... Just brawlers. Brawlers. We have, and my grandfather was like that, and uncle's like that, and a lot of family members, not psychopaths, but they just like to fight. I mean, it's just... And so some of them would get in fights without even being angry. They just like that, that, that sort of... For exercise. Exercise, <laughs> yes. Let's talk a bit more about this warrior gene. You've looked into this. You've, you've, you talk in the book about some of the biochemistry or physiology that might be behind some of these things. And you note that being a psychopath slash or having these warrior genes or whatever, this very aggressive type of behavior, which normally is very bad for society, can in fact and does serve societies well in certain instances. You know, somebody who's, who has these so-called warrior genes, and there's about 15 major ones, and this controls aggression and a level of violence. So, you know, there are no bad genes, there are no bad alleles, forms of genes, but there are ones that are associated with behaviors that, you know, it, it, like we've been saying, in the wrong context, be very dangerous and, or very much in favor of saving you and your family. So somebody who has this, these are people that you want around when things get really tough because they are willing to mix it up and they're willing to stand up to people. And, and even though I'm not a violent person, uh, bullies have not fared well uh, even when I was young. Uh, I don't uh, tolerate bullies, right? And they, I give them the business and because I understand it, right? Those people who are really can let it rip in terms of aggression are very important for society. Most societies have a military. Yeah, most societies, we outsource it to a, a military. We externalize it. To say that we're against killing is ridiculous. Of course, we're not against killing um, and, and war, but we've just formalized it. So if we look at this over 
the millennia, now we're studying this in, uh, in old skeletons, 25, 50,000 year old guys we find where we have the skulls and the genetics to see how far back they've gone. Right now we're looking at a whole family in, from Calabria in, in southern Italy in a cave. He's 24,000 years old. It's called Romito. And um, in looking at them, they, they all have a very high proportion of uh, warrior genes, about 50, there's about 15 of them, but also they're all lactose intolerant and they're surrounded by all this art. So they're meat-eating, hmm. they could be meat-eating artists. We don't know if it's the same <laughs> artist that, uh, that made the, this fantastic art in the caves. So we're trying to look at the evolution of this because, you know, I, I, people would say if, if we could only breed out these aggressive genes, we wouldn't have war. I think it's the most dangerous thing that could ever happen because you know that humans are evolving and mutating very quickly. And if we got rid of all these warrior genes, uh, there's going to be, that will pop up spontaneously. And it, one person could run the world this way. We have to have people who are willing to stand up and really exert their aggression in a physical way, but also intellectually. You know, you know, for diplomats, uh, they're, they're, they can be very aggressive, full of these warrior genes. It's just they sublimate it. They don't do it physically. They're, they dominate intellectually. And so these sorts of things are so key for society and, and so there's always going to be a, a few percent of people who are going to be outside the limit and who are going to be psychopathic or have certain personality disorders associated with sort of spontaneous violence. And it may be just part of doing business as human beings because without it, we could really be taken over very quickly by, and really end up with a, a quite dead civilization in, 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 in a world society. So it's a, a, to me, it's a, it's a balancing thing that's needed. And also the, the key thing, it's not just the aggression and violence, but this empathy, this lack of interpersonal empathy. Well, uh, you can imagine the number of invitations I've had to things like the cardiac surgeons uh, conference and everything, because the heads of that always say, we're loaded with these docs who seem to be very psychopathic. And I said, we should feel lucky, because you know not everybody is able to control themselves unless they are a little cold. And there are certain jobs. Uh, you don't want people to be so emotionally involved all the time. And it's not just that it's like cardiac surgeons, but there's many jobs where it's a good thing to have cognitive empathy and not emotional empathy. You don't want your family practitioner to have this, but you can imagine the sorts of uh, docs where a little bit of coldness would be very good if you want to help somebody, okay? It's funny you say this. I was reflecting back, thinking about medical school days uh, while, while coming down here. Well, somebody gave a talk once, and he said that there's many reasons why you may go into, medic into medicine, and we're glad that you're here and you're doing so, you young students. There's some reasons I hope you didn't go into this. He said, and I met a few like this, that, you, that you're actually into this because you enjoy people's pain. And I remember thinking, holy crap, is he serious? And, and as I think back on some of the individuals whose paths I crossed here, uh, there were some, I think, uh, psychopaths. Yeah. I feel like I'm an apologist for psychopaths. You know, so my buddies, but most psychopaths are not sadists, as it turns out. Do tell, do tell. Jean uh, Desetti at the University of Chicago, he studied uh, bullies and, and, uh, and people who are sadists. And it has its own unique brain pattern. People with this, it's not the same as a psychopath. And in fact, they're not particularly comorbid conditions. So even though psychopaths will, will kill and cause a lot of pain, a lot of times they're not sadists per se. Well, I, I certainly accept your um, explanation of, of how you are a psychopath, of a psychopath light. But I, I do have to stop 
to address the nomenclature issue. I mean, we seem to have terms that are not adequate for our purposes. And, and just to round out the picture, yes, I mean, it may well be that you have you have all these traits that you that you explain in your book, and, and I, I, I take my hat off to you for making this such a personal journey for the benefit of all of us. Well, we're teachers, so, you know, to be in scientist, and, and talking it over with my family, I said, this could be embarrassing. And they, you know, my wife and, and, and even like their kids, uh, and, you know, my brothers too, they said, well, you're scientists and you're teachers, so... It's like that first demotivational poster where sometimes the purpose of your life is to serve as a warning to others. You know? and I was, right. No life is truly wasted. It can always be a bad example. That's right, exactly. So as that bad example, and somebody who, I was in the middle of this. I mean, and, and that's what was so weird. And so we all thought, and I, and I got, tip my hats off to them because this was, is probably is more embarrassing for them than it is me because I'm such a narcissist. I, all attention is good news to me. You know what I mean? <laughs> to them, not so much. Got a lot of introverts. So they were quite good, but they said just because you're that you've been studying this all your life, and you might as well be frank about it. Why not? We're speaking with Dr. James Fallon about his book, The Psychopath Inside: A Neuroscientist's Personal Journey into the Dark Side of the Brain. Well, I can make somewhat of a small contribution to your self-analysis here, and I, and I think I should do so. My med school class and I found your instruction to be very unusual, and it was exceptionally good. That's why we made you our, our favorite professor. We, we gave you an award that year. And, and the reason for this is, well, you were doing things that, I mean, to my mind, that this runs counter to your narrative of psychopathy as we currently define it. Uh, you communicated well. You were a very humorous lecturer, which, of course, enhanced things. But you took extra time to present the data in such a way that it was much more comprehensible to us as first-year medical students. You gave an overview. You gave a context. This took a lot of extra effort on your part. Most other lecturers didn't bother to do so. They gave us the same damn lecture they gave the residents and the faculty. So you, you went out of your way to do this, and to me, this is the opposite of being a superficial person who's non-empathetic and unreliable. So what do you say to that? Well, this is funny. It, you know, that is true, that I would, when I gave lectures, I killed myself to do it. And I told myself, it's just because I care, and I'm a teacher. The more I've looked at this over the years, and I said, maybe it's just that I'm not just a ham, but I'm so narcissistic and so ego-driven that I don't. I have to do a good job. And I and I ran this by a couple of people, a couple of psychiatrists. They said, "Well, you probably it's probably true, but if it worked as being a good teacher, don't complain about it because the students weren't." But I would do anything to I think to look good. In a way, I think it was it was narcissism, egotism. But I also I had fun, and you I mean, you guys were just a tremendous class. I mean, forget it. So you, you guys made it easy to do things in a weird way. Because I, uh, you know, it's part of this almost irresponsible behavior. I did things that would be considered some irresponsibilities in, in terms of teaching. I kind of took it a little outside, and uh, I didn't think so. But in retrospect, I did. Well, what are you thinking of when you say that? Dealing with things now that would be politically incorrect, you know, and as the years went by through the 80s and then especially the late 80s and 90s, you couldn't talk about anything. I said to myself, I got, I'm going to have four hours and they're going to have to listen to me blabber on about the female and male reproductive system. And I have to, I said, boredom's the enemy. And the only way they're going to learn this is to get up outrageous. So the way I would, you know, the miracle of birth and uh, getting all those bladder kelp as sperm and then running around the stage with a 
you know, with a weather balloon covered with... Uh, it's with, coming back to me now. It's coming back and exploding <laughs> it. And it was, you know, the, kind of the miracle of fertilization and, and, and cooking up organs. We always had a, recipes for the different organ systems we talked about. <laughs> Uh, including at the end testicles, which your class, thank you for doing that, uh, for the next next class. Well, you can't do a lot of that now, and it really is a shame, but it was just the politics. It's a damn shame. It's a damn shame. And and so that era where we could really, uh, as teachers and you know medical school professors and otherwise, just let it hang out was a wonderful time. I mean, I was just glad that I, was, I came through at that time because I was allowed to use the that sort of some outrageous behavior to good use because I think those lectures, a lot of people didn't forget some of the stuff because it was just surrounded by all this sort of mayhem and uh, craziness. But, uh, you know, I miss those days, but you can't do that anymore. By the way, I put in my notes, don't accept narcissism as an answer to this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but you know, if you look at in the past couple of years, you know, once I had, you know, talked to all my close friends and my family and and the psychiatrists and psychologists, they all agreed that I, I did have all these these traits, but I wasn't a full-blown psychopath, but I certainly had them. And it was really just general agreement. Uh, I've got some some unsavory things. And I don't talk about all of them, but it's not anything uh, that, that, that people don't respond to. Okay, let's put it that way. What, what I did with my wife, once I realized this, I said, look, I am going to try an experiment. And I just said this to myself, and I said, I'm going to try to, every time I interact with her, I'm going to analyze what I'm doing. And so if we're sitting, eating dinner, and who gets to pour the wine? I would pour the wine to myself first, and then her. Uh, serving dinner and cleaning up, same thing. But then it was had to do with going to funerals and family events with her, and I would bug out. I would go to a party somewhere, just, just come up with a story that was I couldn't do that. And I realized that uh, in doing this, when I really analyzed all my these little micro-behaviors, or behaviors themselves, I was doing the most maximally selfish thing hundreds of times a day. And once I saw that, I started to just stop myself. And it really slowed me down because I'd have to say, what would a good guy do? And after a couple of months of this, she finally said to me, what is up with you? And and I said, well, and I told her. And she goes, it's fantastic. And I said, but I said, you know, it's not sincere. I'm just doing it as an experiment to show I can overcome something people can't overcome. And she says, it doesn't matter. And it blew me away. I said, it doesn't matter. I said, intention is everything, isn't it? She goes, no, it's how you treat people. This, you know, you'd think I'd understand this <laughs> at, at 65 years old, so that, but I didn't. And, and, and so I started doing that with people and it has slowed me down. But is it to be a nice guy? I, I think when I'm really honest with myself, it's to prove I can do things that other people can't do. That's, that's narcissism. And, and I really don't come down hard on myself, but I'm just trying to be honest on all these little things. So when I looked at that and, you know, how much care I put into teaching, I think it was at least an equal amount of wanting to do such a good job because of ego than just wanting to be a good teacher. I think the, they're at least equal. Let's put it that way. My clinical suspicion is you're being hard on yourself. <laughs> no. Doug, I've had like a wonderful life and, and the people close to me would not, they would say, give him both barrels because he's so full of, you know, and he's full of himself. And, uh, but anyway, there's, there's, I think there's enough of it to, to, to be uh, useful to think about.
Let's talk about some the practical matter which you which you're starting to do here. Uh, it turns out two percent of the population by by our reckoning is probably fits the bill for a psychopath. Three percent of males, one percent of females. Say I'm suspicious that uh, my boss, uh, uh, my girlfriend, uh, whatever, an employee is a psychopath. What, what's what's important to keep in mind? Well, somebody who's a psychopath is an intraspecies predator. These are people that are human beings that are predators on other humans. In that way, they have similarities to other animal predators. Once they notice you and see a weakness, they're going to come and get you. If you really know and suspect from all the behavior that somebody is a psychopath and you've heard of some of their behaviors, I, you walk away. You get away from these people. Because if don't make it interesting for them to get you, because they will get you and they're extremely dangerous. And, and some of them, you know, a person like me will just play with your mind and I'll try to manipulate you but without getting anything. And that's the, it can still cause it'll get you angry because you'll be had by them, you know? But they're not going to take your money or, or try to have sex with you or try to kill you. But they're still going to mess with you. And that's this pro-social psychopath light who's in control. That's somebody like me because I naturally always try to manipulate people. Uh, but I don't want to get caught doing anything. So, I, you know, I have, and I'm happy. So, But people in an organization... Uh, psychopaths are very good at reading not only people and people's emotion. They know what you're thinking and feeling. These are the intelligent ones who are in control of themselves enough. They'll find a place in the organization where they can hide but still have power around uh, in a group of people. And they'll make you dependent and they'll make you, uh, they'll start manipulating you. They'll start drawing you in and you'll feel com uncomfortable because you'll feel like you've just been suckered and all of a sudden you get drawn into a web and you feel uncomfortable. That is a real warning sign. And I would get out. I would just find a way out, move laterally in an organization, somehow uh, move out of there because, um, and without getting a mad, because if you get a mad, it, it always ends poorly. They'll come after you even if it takes time? Yeah. They're very good at delaying the sort of gratification. They can go on months and years and get you. Sadly, we have to end it there today, but I'm hoping that this will not be Dr. Fallon's last appearance on this program. We thank him for his generous donation of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and hope next week we'll talk a little bit more about that wonderful Stan Freeberg tribute last Sunday night. And we haven't forgot about bringing you Tony Wheeler. We'll see you next week at the same time. Yeah.